All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, and with me today is Marty Frederick. Marty, what's up, dude? Not much. How are you, Josh? I'm just chilling, man. Uh, yeah. It's a- Josh, we have, we have I have an announcement to make. <clears throat> tomorrow, from when we're recording this episode, tomorrow is your birthday. That's true, and I'm going to be 16. You're going to be... I was going to say, you're going to be 16 years old. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now, Josh, Josh is going to be 26. Yep. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. You're going to spend some time in some breweries and with your family. Yeah, that's the plan. Going to uh, one today to celebrate my brother-in-law's birthday and one tomorrow to celebrate mine. So nice. sounds, sounds like nice. a plan. Yeah. Just make sure, make sure, make sure you only have like half a glass so that you don't, don't have too much. Right. You know, fair enough. Tiny guy. Yeah. Tiny guy. Because, you know, I remember a time way back when, when you and I worked together at a church and we weren't allowed to have alcohol and then you left and you and your wife went to like a beer festival and posted a picture on Instagram. <laughs> and then the pastor at that church that I still worked at, that you no longer worked at, called you an alcoholic with me did. in the room because he you posted did. a picture of yourself drinking a beer. He did. Yeah, he did. And I guess maybe it's best not to, uh, to let him know that we went with uh, congregants of his yeah. <laughs> to that beer <laughs> festival. Yeah, well, that's okay. He doesn't Just, listen to this. And if he does, then now he's, he's the wiser. He definitely does not listen to it. But yeah, but, but it's, it's cool. It, it was just like your typical, uh, I mean, see, that church wasn't Baptist, but secretly, like any church that says they're non-denominational, most of the time, that just means they're Baptist. <laughs> and so whenever right. we're there right at the beer festival baptists never recognize each other you don't know yeah. oh I, I don't know that guy <laughs> only in church anyways that's right yeah we should probably move on we do have a guest with us today <laughs> they're actually a returning guest they were with us back on episode number 76 to discuss uh some ideas and concepts around their book trouble i've seen and now they're back and that is dr drew hart uh drew how's it going I'm doing great. I'm glad to be back. I'm looking forward to this yeah. conversation. Yeah, it's glad exciting, to have you. Man. It's yeah. been. Go ahead, Marty. Well, no, you go ahead. You had you had something you wanted to say. Oh, I was just going to say it's it's been a little bit uh, since we got a last talk, um, and you know, 
things might be a little bit different since the last time we talked. So what's going on in the, the world of Drew Hart? Well, I'm teaching. I'm, I'm doing hybrid teaching with remote students and in-person social distance distancing at the moment. And also very busy with local justice work here and also um, just a lot of positive so far feedback and response to the book that is keeping me very busy as well. So, yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah, it's been awesome to to kind of watch your your most recent book blow up. And I personally have really enjoyed uh, following it and uh, tuning into like all the different uh, like conversations you've been doing. I've loved the the um, like how you've been doing the individual chapters and like having a conversation with a different person about each one. That's been really cool to to listen to. And I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's been a really cool thing to do this time around. And really neat to engage with other folks that I respect and kind of hear how they're processing and thinking about the relationship between that and the work that they do. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, it's been good. And also too, before we get too far and I forget Drew, um, I have a good friend uh, named AJ Jones. His, his proper name is Anthony, but uh, he had taken classes with you during his time at Messiah and his, uh, I believe his mom still teaches there. And I told him I would yeah. give you some love. So a shout out from AJ. <laughs> oh, yeah, AJ was great. Great student. Great student. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's, he's a good guy. Sweet. Well, before we go too far, um, Drew, we have a, a question that you probably were asked before that we asked every guest. And so we've had a couple people that have come on a second time. So we had to come up with like a different icebreaker question. Um, and so my the question we have is, uh, who is your, who is the, who is your favorite live musical guest or li live musical artist that you've ever seen? Favorite. Um, yeah, or the best question. live, live show you've ever been to or something like that. All right. So the best that I, one of the best I've ever been to now, it doesn't sound as cool in 2020. Um, but in the early, in the early 21st century, I went to this crazy Kanye West live concerts yeah. in Baltimore. And it was like, it was great. It was excellent. <laughs> um, but you know, I would not be, um, spending money to go see Kanye right now, but, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, but that was actually a really fun concert. Um, and that, and I also remember, and this is very switching into gospel, but uh, Kirk Franklin was actually mm. a lot of fun too, mm. being at his concert. Yeah. So those were the two probably, and some of it's also, I mean, it's always about who's around at the time and having good times and stuff. So, yeah. 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 I, I played a show, uh, like a, a church revival type outdoor thing a couple of weeks ago. And uh, there was like a, a gospel group that came up and played after us. I was playing the drums and the guy who played, um drums after me was like a total full-on like gospel drummer and number one i've never seen one of my crash cymbals hit that hard before um, <laughs> but, but number two it was just like i had been i had done my thing and i thought like hey i'm doing a pretty good job and then this guy comes up and you're like okay well forget it <laughs> uh, i'll either practice there's, more or there's no musicians like black church musicians it's hey, true they're, they're on a whole nother level yep and and our buddy ronnie would our, our buddy Ronnie would definitely attest to that because that's what he is too. So yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but yeah, good, awesome answers. Yeah, man. And just uh, again, for people who might not have uh, heard the first episode we did with you, um, although listeners, if you haven't, you might want to go back and listen to that uh, because this is going to be kind of a carried over conversation. Uh, there'll be some things that we're just, you know, assuming because we've had this conversation before. So that might be worth going uh, back and listening to. 
Uh, but Drew, can you just give us real quick elevator pitch? Who is Drew Hart uh, for people who might not be familiar with you and your work? Yeah, so I guess um, people know me in different spheres of my life. Uh, for many people, um, they know me as assistant professor of theology at Masai University. Um, so I'm in beginning my fifth year of teaching right now. Um, and I teach, yeah, theology as well as some other courses there. Um, so that's one sphere. I'm a former pastor. I pastored for about 10 years, both in Philly and Harrisburg. Um, and so urban ministry has been a, a deep part of my life. Um, while I'm not pastoring anymore, I'm still deeply involved in my congregation. Another aspect of my life, I'm um, co-leader for a group called Free Together, which um, just is a relational network of uh, leaders in the community that we're helping to kind of do anti-racist formation and help uh, partner and collaborate with organizers and folks doing good justice work in our community. Um, I'm a father and a husband. I've got um, three boys, uh, nine, seven, and three, and they keep me busy all the time. Um, and I'm an author, um, and obviously for two books, Who Will Be a Witness and Trouble I've Seen, and podcaster. I do um, a podcast, Inverse Podcast with Jared McKenna and some other stuff. And so yeah, um, different spheres of my life. People know me for very different reasons, but um, but yeah, all of that, I guess, is part of who makes up Drew Hart. Hmm. That's great. You know, and, you know, I've, I've been listening and kind of watching you on social media over the last couple months, uh, especially since after we had you on a couple months ago, beginning of summer. Um, and I've, I've just loved the work that you've done, but like, you know, you've, you've kind of, I don't want to say been all things to all people, because I don't know that that's necessarily been the goal but you've definitely reached a lot of people that I think maybe not might may not have been reached on the topics of social justice and those types of things lately which has been really awesome to see so yeah um, yeah I mean I think some of that is even just my own journey that of different spaces that I've inhabited that have helped yeah. me to connect with people in different ways so like going through Messiah uh, College as undergrad, and that opened me up to a whole new world of white evangelicals and others as well, and Anabaptists and a whole bunch of stuff. Going to Missio Seminary, um, graduating there, missional theology, evangelicalism, some conservative forms in there as well, all kinds of stuff. Going to Lutheran Theological Seminary, kind of engaging more with the mainline church, um, and obviously having my own background with, you know, black church communities. And so, all of that has always continued to help me just give a language to be able to engage different groups. And I think that's something that I value that I've had those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think what's really helped bridge the gap for a lot of that for you is this new book that you have, uh, who will be a witness inviting activism for God's justice, love and deliverance. Uh, so can you just tell us why did you write this book? I mean, to me, it seems obvious, and it's it was obviously timely, like you know, in, in our in our unfortunately in our culture and society right now. But you know, there's probably other reasons besides what's going on around us. So, wh why did you write this book? Yeah, I mean, what is interesting is that I mean, this book was it was written and finished in terms of manuscript wise before the pandemic ever hit, right? Um, and so, even though it feels like a book that was like written for our moment, like. I was not anticipating the pandemic nor the second wave of Black Lives Matter to be um, happening in the way that it is right now. And so uh, I'm not a fortune teller, um, but what, what was the result of it was actually, as I was actually going around the country, engaging folks around my first book, Trouble I've Seen, and really getting really positive response overall, one of the things that did come up over and over again was, 
all right, Drew, all right, we get this anti-racist discipleship stuff, systemic racism, white supremacy, all that, all right, fine. Um, but you're calling us to go out and do racial justice. What does that actually mean and look like, right? Um, there was this kind of this gap in which people didn't actually know what it actually means to do justice in the streets. I mean, everyone, it's one thing to affirm, yeah, justice, we need justice, but it's a whole other thing, like, what does that work actually look like for the church especially? And so that kind of was the spark for me that, all right, folks need some help and some guidance to think through this some more. Um, and because I had been doing uh, local level grassroots work, I'm a co-leader over this group in Harrisburg, like I knew I had a lot of experiences and stories and insights um, to share. I had done reading and studied on social science around some of this stuff as well. So it's just a lot of insight that I could bring to the conversation. Um, but I knew also like, even though that was the initial starting point, I was like, but there's some deeper problems that we've got to grapple with beyond just some strategies for social change, right? That, that, and so probably, people will probably be a little surprised that the book is a lot more than just that. It's, there's a deeper, deeper issue that I want to get at. And so I'm really grappling with um, the domesticated and diluted Jesus and kind of revolutionizing, revolutionizing the way that we understand who Jesus is. I'm grappling with the really mangled history of the church, right? Um, how we got to where we are today, and even just what it means to be the church as a community together. Um, and then we're ready to think theologically about and strategically about how we can engage at the grassroots level in actually doing the work in our communities. Yes, yeah, so that, that was kind of the story for how I got to where um, I did with writing the book. Yeah, that, that's, that's really great because I, like, like you were saying, there, it's not just simply a one, a one matter issue. And, and to be honest, I think a lot of things it, there, there's more, there's something under the surface usually that leads to something that we wind up needing to grapple with. And part of me wonders, as you probably did as right as you were writing this, and then as you have been having these conversations, if, you know, part of the issue, if we're just talking about racial justice in America, part of the issue may be, you know, we've been, we've been willing to deal sort of with band-aid surface level things, but not really the root issue of what's caused those things to arise to the top. And so then now we're stuck continually going back and fixing the same problem over and over again. But that same problem isn't really the, the cause or the, the thing that needs fixing, uh, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm, I'm right with you. Um, I think that, and a lot of it is our failure to remember, right? Um, yeah. It's our, our inability, our unwillingness to, or maybe our intentional forgetting maybe is the other way of getting at it right um what we want to remember and what we want to forget and what we leave behind in a race out of our memory and especially for the church our witness uh, we i mean it's interesting even as i teach like theology courses how many students initially they don't even want to like in an african-american theology they're surprised and disturbed that we're talking about slavery why would we do that right you know um and so um, there's this wanting to, at least for certain things, right? Selectively, we need to forget certain things and hold on to other things. And I think there's some deep, deep stuff that is repressed in the life of certainly the mainstream American church, but probably you could say broader, the Western church altogether, um, that we have to grapple with um, if we're going to kind of move in a really more, you know, liberative way. Yeah, and it's... I'll just, I'll just preemptively say, just go buy the book because... <laughs> yeah, like as, usually we do that at the very end of the podcast like after you've heard it all but like i mean you're just gonna you're gonna save your time right <laughs> yeah exactly right go by the, go by well, the book. yeah i was joking with marty earlier too drew like just the 
the introduction to your book alone is far worth the cost and then some like it's so I've good heard many people say that which it's, is kind of fun to hear i mean i don't know like for me i'm like oh i'm just framing things a little bit getting people ready but i've heard many people say that which i appreciate yeah yeah the introduction just like boom <laughs> there it is it's <laughs> awesome but it what's crazy drew and and this just it came to mind you were talking about this idea of maybe some intentional forgetting um and it what it brought to mind for me is this idea that uh recently i'm sure you've seen a specific person has uh, basically said that anti-racism and diversity training is anti-American and teaching children about anti-racism is child abuse and it is un-American and we can't do that. Uh, (laughs) There, there it is like the, not to get too political too quick, but I mean, it's inevitably going to go there. I think that is the epitome of, white evangelical Christianity within the Trump era. There it is. Like that's a culmination of it showing up. And I think what we're seeing is people, at least in the circles that I I tend to swim in, people are so fed up and so done. They're walking away from the faith completely. When in reality, I think perhaps they're walking away from a faith that they should be walking away from, you know? Um, But they're kind of, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like Jesus himself would be like, yeah, bro, you gotta, you know, that's not cool. <laughs> so, but then, but, but then they're staying away for good. Right. Which is the problem, <laughs> which is the problem. Right. That's, that's the harm is the, 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 it's, I think there's no question that, that we need to let go of death dealing religion, right? Anytime religion is death dealing, we need to walk away with it. The problem is they've attached Jesus's name to this. And so they actually vandalize the very name of Jesus, the person of Jesus is associated with this. Um, I've often said that we've um, converted Jesus into a mascot for the status quo. And I mm. think that this really shows up um, very well in terms of how people are responding to, to the name of Jesus um, with just disgust precisely because of the kind of religion that's being practiced and expressed in the public square. Yeah. You know, and, and actually through like reading your book, you know, over the course of this week, whatever, we actually wrote a statement that we posted on our Instagram uh, if you don't mind, I'll read it because I think it's yeah, really it's, uh, We wrote, uh, today's true Jesus follower is unfortunately caught between a rock and a hard place. When we aren't fighting our own personal spiritual battles, we are doing damage control in our genuine relationships, personal and otherwise, because of the things that are being spewed from the mainline conservative Christian factions that don't model the real character of Jesus. So many are being turned off from the idea of Jesus and those of us that are desperately trying to seek him and model who he is to those around us are exhausted from apologizing for what has been said about him in faith, exhausted from untangling the lie that Christianity and patriotism go hand in hand, that Jesus would have been a Republican or Democrat. If you're interested in seeking Jesus and seeking change and seeking unity and in leading others to Jesus, stop making it about all this other stuff. Keep the main thing the main thing because Jesus is king. And I thought that we, we got a lot of really great interaction from that because I, I think that people were really genuinely i think people are feeling that um that they're feeling like in their relationships the people that are really seeking like like you and i and the people that are i don't know i don't want to use that that the weird woke term or whatever but like people that are realizing it are are feeling like when they're talking with their friends about jesus what's being attached to jesus is the all the other stuff um and so it's not necessarily 100 percent your book but it's it fits our conversation i think 
Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely fits. Yeah. And so for me, like, I guess, like, I'm one of those folks, like, I love Jesus too much to hand him over to uh, uh, status quo religionists. I just won't play that game. You know, that, that I'll fight on that, right? Um, and, and that's why, like, one of the folks I quote is Frederick Douglass's quote from his appendix of his slave narrative, right? Where he's like, you know, um, you know, he loves, you know, the religion of Christ um, and the way of Christ, and so therefore hates uh, the Christianity of this land, and that there's true Christianity in this Christian of this land, and to to love one is necessarily to hate the other, right? That's what he argues. Um, and so then he goes on and he says, you know, I love the pure, peaceable, impartial Christianity of Christ, and I therefore hate the slaveholding, woman whipping, cradle robbing, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Like it's a powerful indictment on the kind of religious practices. Um, that upheld the status quo rather than challenging the oppressive cycles that we saw going on at that time. And unfortunately, it's just mutated in terms of the same thing happening in our present day in just new ways. Yeah, most definitely. And I think in regards to that, I mean, uh, with Frederick Douglass and um, also just like a recent conversation um, that we had with uh, uh, Dr. Dennis Edwards, um, oh, yeah, Dennis, yep. yeah, Dennis is awesome. His book, Might from the Margins, was, uh, was fantastic. But it, it, it brings to mind, again, this idea of like c- this conflation of America and Christianity or nationalism and, and Christianity. And um, I kind of had a, a like a aha moment when I was talking with Dennis um, because we were talking about how, how that happens so much, right? And you, you, I mean, attack that very well in your book, the, the conflation of nationalism and Christianity. Um, and I remember I first started uh, challenging that when I was spending time at, at my time at Messiah, um, which unfortunately was like, I think I graduated the year before you, you came on staff, but I read Greg Boyd's book, Myth of a Christian Nation. Yeah. And it was there that I started to question these things, but I noticed that um, a lot of my, uh, my black friends, when I would talk that way, were down with it, but then like my other more just like typical people I grew up with were not. And I, I didn't quite understand, but this, this realization with Dennis was like, well, you're not going to have this conflation of Christianity and nationalism when you're the, you're the group being oppressed because that conflation was made to oppress other people. And that just like blew things wide open for me. Um, yeah. And so I think this is a, this nationalism bit is a constant issue. And I think one of the ones that you point out um, very early on in your book that I think um, is like groundwork super helpful is the idea that our idea of American freedom is very different from this idea of liberation and freedom within scripture. Can yeah. you break that down for us? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's pretty obvious that the American understanding of freedom has evolved out of the Enlightenment era and this idea of supposedly inalienable rights and, you know, um, this freedom and autonomy of the individual. Um, and of course, even from the very beginning, it was always clear. In fact, it's pretty clear. It makes it most obvious in U.S. history that this meant for white men who were uh, land uh, landowning, right? Um, it was a very selective group of people who that included eventually um, over fights in the late end of slavery, you know, other white men you know, <laughs> insist that they're included in this definition as well. And so they get some more rights. Um, but what is interesting is um, that it's hyper-individualistic in terms of the idea of freedom and rights in that kind of sense. 
um, what I can do and what you can't tell me and things like that. Um, hyper individual. And so it's all about the self um, and no one should tread on my rights and no one should tread on my freedom. Right. Um, that's the kind of framing that you hear all the time. The very language. I mean, I, don't, I think I'm being generous in saying like I'm really articulating the language that is used by others. And in contrast to that, what we see in um, when we think about God's deliverance and God's freedom is God delivers the Israelites out of bondage, out of slavery, right out of oppression um, and puts and brings them into a covenant community. And, and with that is a, an inherent connection, interconnection and responsibility to one's neighbors. I mean, when you think about the Torah and what's going on, it's not just about all of a sudden now it's just about me and God, right? No, it's about the relationship with the community and others and how do we live ethically and, and responsibly for others. And so it's a very different kind of freedom that we're talking about, not free to just do whatever I want, but free to be who God has called us to be as a people, right? As a community, not just for myself. And so, yeah, we've got to differentiate um, American freedom from God's freedom, from God's deliverance. And we've got to separate American rights from God's righteousness, which calls us to so much more. Um, it calls us to set things right and to do justice on behalf of others. Yeah, that, and that, that idea reminds me too of, of then this, this idea, I think we get confused, the idea of peace and shalom, right? We have this idea of peace, and I think you talk about peace as like, um, like the, the absence of conflict or something, versus shalom, which is a much more holistic uh, kind of idea. And I think that misunderstanding also plays into this like freedom, you know, American freedom, do whatever you want kind of deal versus looking out for neighbor. Um, you know, because often just to, you know, pick something <laughs> controversial, I guess, like guns, for example, right? How, how far can we take our right to own guns until it starts to infringe on the rights of other people? And so then that's the American freedom, whereas like biblical freedom would seek to the, the good of neighbor, right? Is, right. is that right. peace and shalom? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. And, and so, and I would just, just so re, uh, he, listeners don't get confused. Okay. Anytime in the Bible, they use the word peace, they're thinking shalom. Like that, let's just be, so when we say peace, right, that's the better way of saying is the way that we use the word peace in our context in the 21st century in the United States, we have this understanding. We think of peace as the absence of violence. But when, when in the Jewish and Christian tradition, we're talking about peace from a scriptural standpoints, um, peace is always rooted in this, uh, uh, this vision of shalom that's rooted in, in the Hebrew scriptures. And so it is this much more comprehensive vision for all of creation in which there's harmony and wholeness and we're bound together. And that's where the lion and the lamb can lay down together, right? Um, and, and so I think that um, we've lacked that kind of comprehensive vision the implications of God's shalom, of God's peace for all of creation. I mean, in many ways, it ties to like King's vision for a beloved community. I mean, it's a great uh, connection point um, to understand our interrelatedness with one another, bound to one another, uh, one another. Our destinies are bound. And so when we find wholeness and, and, and healing with one another, then there is some, some actual peace. So peace inherently includes, and that's why you see it all through the Hebrew scriptures, justice and righteousness, all these things are bound up in the idea of peace, that those things have to already exist for the be peace. So, so when people talk about, oh, we need to be peaceful, 
um, but, but they want people to not actually engage in confronting and working for justice. It's actually not, has nothing to do with the kind of peace that Jesus taught, the, the early church taught, nor what we find through the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah, it's almost as if they want to sweep it under the rug and just put it all away <laughs> and right, not have to right. be the one to deal with it. Right, and, peace, uh, status and, quo. I mean, that's what it is. Right. It's about the status yeah. quo. That way of talking about peace is very status quo. Yeah, go back to the way things were before. Uh, right. And right. and to me, that's a very natural psychological thing to think, well, it was fine before was in fine my before. eyes. Everything was fine before. And so now this has upset everything. You know, like when Jesus walked into the temple and he flipped over all the tables, some of the guys before were probably like, well, all this other time, this was fine before. But then That's you came right. in and upset all this. And now we have to change. At least we have to clean it all up. That's um, right. And and so, but but they were missing like why he was doing that. Um, and yeah. so I, I, I wanted, I want to kind of shift a little bit over to a, a different, a different thought process. Um, chapter one, you started talking about uh, Jesus, like the, the message in the gospels. Um, and one of them was like the imperial message in Mark's gospel. Uh, what lessons can we find there to help our prophetic witness today? Yeah, there's a few things there. Um, I mean, one of what I, I want people to see when we look at the gospel of Mark is the kind of radical, kind of like revolutionary, nonviolent revolutionary strategy of Jesus that's kind of unfolding in this space. Um, he's, you see a vision of him as he's going and getting ready to go to the temple. He's got everything set up already. He's got this, you know, cult ready for his disciples to grab. So he's kind of prepared this whole thing, orchestrated, and it's symbolic in terms of um, the imagery of it, right? Um, Zechariah and the Maccabees are kind of embodied in it as he's riding in. Um, it evokes a history, a memory. It's almost like, um, you know, anytime, you know, people do a large march on Washington now, right? What do people think of now, right? I have a dream speech, a Dr. King. Like that comes to mind because it's a part of the ethos now. That so much more was the ethos in terms of the Maccabees, um, in terms of how they resisted um, a previous empire that had uh, overstepped their boundaries with the Jewish people uh, in a previous generation. And so I think that, yeah, to see the, the strategy of preparation, the strategy of symbolic work that Jesus is doing that is awakening people's kind of consciousness to God's reign. Um, and then to see um, the kind of strategic uh, discernment that Jesus engages in, um, just this radical moment where it's only in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus goes into the temple, he scouts it out, he looks around, and, you know, he's got the crowd with him. Everyone's excited, ready to, like, you know, tear this place up. And then he leaves, and they decide that it's not the right time, and they go back to leave this city, right? Um, it's this like kind of anticlimactic thing um, that we had building up and then all of a sudden, and then he comes right back the next day when it's the right time in the morning, right? And then he causes trouble, right? And so like there's kind of this strategy and discernment happening um, with Gospel of Mark that we get to see, get to lean into. Um, and so, yeah, there, I mean, there's just these kind of things that I think are really helpful for us um, to see the way that Jesus escalates throughout the Gospel of Mark is really powerful um, especially for those that are trying to do grassroots work. I think it's a really powerful image um, to see the good news embodied through the person of Jesus Christ, precisely what then he says, uh, take up your cross and follow me, right? This is the example that we're called to engage in. Um, and so um, in, a, in the way that the gospel of Mark ends off, right? With this kind of uncertainty is precisely in a, it's a rhetorical move 
it leaves you with like, how will this story be resolved? And the only way it will be resolved is by how we live that out, if we actually continue that story out. And so there's an expectation for us as well that we are going to um, embody the practices and way of life that Jesus practiced right before. Yeah, I, I loved uh, that bit. I had never heard um, somebody explain the ending of Mark in that way, that it's now like, okay, go do likewise kind of bit, which only makes sense, right? Um, it's always kind of been taught to me that it was like, oh, it's mysterious and like, you know, we should be sad because we don't know, like, you know, the, the Good Friday kind of thing. Um, yeah, I love that. And also too, the, the commentary that you suggested in that chapter, the, is it Binding the Strongman? Uh, yeah, Chad Myers is brilliant. Like, oh, oh he's my he's amazing. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's a good guy so too. Good. And he's not just a brilliant scholar. He's one of these guys that actually lives this out. Oh, sweet. Um, Chad Myers is a good guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll well, I'll link that in the show notes for listeners as well. Uh, but so one thing uh, that you constantly come back to, um, and with my like Anabaptist side and roots, I really like this. Um, but I want to ask you a question first and then we'll, we'll tie into it. But it's this idea of um, the nonviolent Messiah. Yeah. And I have found, at least in my experience, and this is the question I wanted to ask you, I've found mixed uh, thoughts and ideas and emotions around the idea of nonviolence within the social justice movements of today. Absolutely. Um, specifically, I remember having a conversation with somebody uh, who was using the story of uh, Jesus overturning the tables um, to justify uh, violence. And they specifically were talking about, you know, using a whip to chase out people, which that doesn't happen, but we don't have to talk about that. Um, right. And so I wanted to see like, what, what has been your experience uh, wrestling with that? Um, because I think it's, it's, there's no like clear um, answer there within the, the movement itself. So yeah, and, and I think all movements always struggle with this. Um, and that's why, I mean, when I write the second chapter, Liberating Barabbas, Love it's fully chapter. aware, right? Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite chapters, but it also it is wading to the waters that are very messy and muddied waters when it comes to, <coughs> and when it comes to working for justice. And so I think that there will always be in the just injustice work uh, a lively conversation around um, the role of violence, what constitutes violence, right? Who gets to define the violence? Um, all of these issues are always going to be um, things that people have to grapple with. And so, yeah, and, and that's precisely what we see in the story of Jesus itself, that Jesus, the Jesus story is not um, unaware of these challenges, right? And the diversity of of ways that people go about seeking revolution um, in the world. For me, I mean, I come to this thinking about it, nonviolent resistance from a, a few different angles. One, as a, a follower of Jesus, I just believe that that is what Jesus teaches, right? Um, I believe that that is what he's calling us into. And so it's a, as a matter of faith, um, first and foremost was probably my first impetus into this, right? That this is who I see Jesus challenging us to be as a people, um, to be people that take up our cross and are willing to die, people that love even our enemies. That means our goal is not to destroy them, but to win them over, even as we try to destroy the systems that are harming people. Um, and I think that, and people that insist that everyone is made in the image of God, which is deeply rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so I think all of those things certainly lead me towards 
um, a kind of non-Christian non-violence. But I think that um, it also is a matter of fact that there, there's a misunderstanding around nonviolence as well, right? That there's this perception that the, the logic, the common sense logic is only violence is what makes things work in our world. Um, and people, it's easy to believe that. I mean, I think that probably had I not looked deeper, that would be my running assumption, right? Violence works, nonviolence, that's cute. That, that might be a nice moral high ground, but that's not what actually brings social change. And I think that um, what, what is interesting is that people, in fact, I mean, the famous example is Erica Chenoweth, the great sociologist who didn't initially believe in the, the power of nonviolence and actually began studying it and saw that all around the world, nonviolence was actually more effective than nonviolence. I mean, nonviolence was more effective than violence. Um, twice as effective as violence all around the world, both under democracies and dictators, and growing in effectiveness while violent movements are actually decreasing in effectiveness over the years. And so there's an interesting social science argument as well in terms of what is actually working. <coughs> and, I, and I think that um, some of the reason I think people can get frustrated, particularly in the United States, around the idea of nonviolence is because of how it gets discussed and framed. I think that we frame it, like most people, they say, we're going to do some not, we're going to engage in nonviolence. What they really mean is we're going to go out and march and rally, right? And that's all they're thinking of, right? We're going to march and rally and that's it. Um, but when people actually talk about like nonviolent resistance, that's not what, that's not, it's strategic and creative nonviolence is actually what is effective. Um, just marching and rallying over and over and over again. I mean, there's time and place for marches and rallies, um, but that's not the strategic nonviolence. Um, if it's movement work, then usually you talk about like other things like escalation and things like other that, or strategic like targeting, like how you're going to hit, uh, engage the pillars of power that exist in the society. There's different ways that we can engage in strategic ways that actually. Um, what, what, what social science says is that when you have 3.5% of a population um, that are sustained and active in the movement, it always works. Always, right? Um, I mean, it's pretty powerful. Um, now, if you think about 3.5% is not a small percentage, but it's, it, but anyway, all that to say, like, I think there's false assumptions, but I, but I get it. I, I always tell people just on a logical level, like, you know, if I've got an issue with something that the U.S. government is doing, like my idea of a successful approach to changing it is not fighting the U.S. government on its own terms. I mean, the U.S. government has the greatest military power the world has ever seen. Um, and as macho as I might feel, wanting to, you know, say I'm going to buy all the guns and tear it all down, um, that's actually just suicide. I mean, that, I mean, and look, I, I, I always tell people like, I, you will never hear me say a negative word about the ancestor Nat Turner, for example, right? Deep respect. I don't know what I would do. I think it was in an inevitable situation where there just weren't any, it was just the level of violence and oppression left no good options, right? Um, so I don't promise that nonviolence will always work. Um, but I also know like what, what happened like was suicide, like there was no way that in Nat Turner's situation, that he, that violence was going, he was not going to, uh, he could beat out, beat one plantation or another, right? 
Um, but the fact of the matter is that there were militaries waiting and to be riled up, riled together to, to come in and snuff them out. And that's what ended up happening. Um, and so I think that for those who are minorities, for those that have the kind of military power, um, actually nonviolence is actually uh, actually very strategic and wise option, even for people who are not people of faith, even for those who aren't followers of Jesus, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's why like, I tie together the faithfulness and the effectiveness, because I think that's why Jesus talks about the things that make for peace, right? The, the things that make for shalom. There actually are ways of living that actually are more likely to break the cycle than other ways. It doesn't guarantee in any situation, and I don't want to overpromise in any moment, but I do think that overall, um, it actually is more faithful and effective in, in, in creating shalom and beloved community that we want to see um, build. Yeah, and, and I could just speak from, you know, the perspective I've seen, uh, like, you know, walking the streets of Kenosha um, and seeing total destruction. Um, I mean, car dealerships completely burned to the ground, buildings completely just like, like left in rubble. Um, and, and to be totally honest with you, the word from the people that are around the area that maybe aren't, that, you know, if they don't live in Kenosha, but they're from the area or whatever, is not, well, geez, we, I guess we better change the way that we do things around here. It's, well, why the heck did they do all this? You know, like, you know, and, and like, that's the answer. And, or that's, that's always what people are saying is, I can't believe they would destroy this city. I can't believe they would tear this down. I can't believe, like, did you know that that was a, that was a black owned business and you just burned it to the ground? And, and the, the violent actions they have, and from what I've seen on the ground personally, is they've actually, anyone that's been on the margins or been even teetering on the fence thinking like, maybe I want to get involved in like, you know, some sort of activism towards, you know, getting rid of racism, getting rid of that thought process. It has, it has, it has widened the divide, I think, for a lot of people. Um, it has made people more upset because they, they can't help but associate the day, like the violence to the movement. Um, right. And, and that's, and that's yeah. not been the way it is, but that's, but that's what they have associated it with. And it's turned into this completely other thing. Um, right. But there's, then there's been worship services and there's been, um, you know, prayer services and there's been, there's been churches that have organized prayer walks and different things like that. And I've found that that has been so much more inviting and that's been so much more, um, it's, it's done so much more work to, 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 to shorten the gap between between those that are upset and between those that need something um, and between those that, that want to see change happen in the community. There's been more done through targeted nonviolent um, work, you know, getting, getting your hands dirty than there has been and just burning things down. Yeah. Though I, I always want to then defend those who riot, right. Also like that's my is, you know, and obviously the famous quote from Dr. King, right. That, uh, the riot is the voice of the unheard. Um, mm -hmm. And it's precisely that. I mean, look, people have been crying out and trying to use the formal channels of society and the formal channels of society have ignored them over and over and over again. And usually the people who are rioting are those who are at the at the most, have the least to, to, to lose in this, right? Uh, or the, the right. they have the most to gain, but the least to lose because they're already so vulnerable and oppressed in our communities, the poorest of the poor. Um, and those who've been impacted most deeply that would risk such radical action. So we've got to ask ourselves, 
why would somebody take such radical action response to this? And then the other thing to remember is, is and that's why I, I'm careful or cautious about calling the burning down of buildings violence. I know that sounds strange, but I guess only because I don't want us to miss the bigger picture um, because how our society wants to narrate the story, I guess that's really what's at stake. It's it, like, I could say like, I don't think um, the burning down the building, I think usually, especially in the United States, the, the example is, is that when you engage in those kind of things, it usually does exactly what you said, Marty, right? It usually re, um, alienates more people rather than brings people in. And so that usually you, it ends up losing out in its goals often. Um, but on the other hand, like the example I give is, you know, you walk into a room and you see an adult beating down on a little toddler, right? They're just punching on them. And then you see this toddler on his back, punch back once, right? And then you come in and you scold the toddler. Don't hit back. Hitting is not helpful. It's unproductive. You shouldn't hit back. Violence is wrong, right? Well, that would be ridiculous, right? Um, because of this adult has just been pounding on this little child and we're focused more on the way that this child responds hitting back than we are with the greater violence of this adult beating on them. And I think that when we think about literally 400 years of this the United States government beating down on black people, um, of course, like people are going to respond in all kinds of different ways and not all of them are necessarily going to break the cycle of violence. Um, but in some ways, like to even call that violence almost is insulting in the grand scheme of what we're talking about. And I guess that's why I'm hesitant. It's not that it, 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 it's not breaking the cycle of violence. It's not, right? Usually, most often. There, there are probably a few exams. I don't want to overstate, even as a nonviolent advocate, I don't want to overstate that never. But, but often it's not. It, often it does um, alienate people and, and create more polarization, I think, in our society. But nonetheless, the greater real systemic violence that's happening, we've got to name the elephant in the room. Um, that's why Dr. King, he, he said, you know, in, in response to the Vietnam War and all, he, he said, you know, I can no longer critique um, these boys engaging in violence in, in, you know, the inner cities without naming the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, my own, the United States government, right? Um, powerful statements, um, because he saw the scope of what was happening. Um, and so I do think there's some, somehow we've got to, in the midst of also, like for me, challenging. Um, I also see myself as like, Mike, I share concerns with those folks, right? Who are out there doing that kind of wild stuff. Like I share co deep concerns. They're my brothers and sisters um, and I want what's best for them. Um, and I hope that I can invite them into something more, um, uh, more, you know, rooted in the way of Jesus that I think actually has the potential to be transformative and liberative for our society. And at the same time, I, I got to re-narrate the story overall, the big story that's being told in terms of the, yeah. the weight of the emphasis needs to be put back on how we've organized our society in such a way that it either does quick violence or slow violence to many poor black and brown communities. Well, and it's like that meme that's been going around lately that says uh you know when 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 he kneeled on the field you said don't protest like that and when he when so and so did this you said don't protest like that and then when they did this you said no not like that either right, <laughs> and, right. and, I, and i think i think that's the truth is there's there's a deeper issue there that it's not that you don't want them to protest violent or non-violent you just don't want them to do anything at all you right and, and when people do that when people pick on kaepernick for kneeling 
you're pushing people to take even more radical steps because of how, you know, how yeah. frustrating and insulting that is. Um, when people do the most nonviolent, smallest gestures you can imagine, and people freak out as, it, you know, of course, and then they're surprised that people want to burn down buildings. Like, literally, that, how about you actually have a conversation and listen to the concerns? Yeah. Then people won't need to burn down buildings. There won't be yeah. a need to go to these outside channels because you've opened up the channels for actual conversation to listen and hear their stories. And I think that yeah. that is lacking. And it, yeah, so it's, it's, I think, deeply frustrating, I think, for a lot of folks to see those patterns for how people just get silenced and ignored, even when they're doing constructive things, you know, trying to do yeah. it more. People are boycotting the NBA now because it's just silly. It just doesn't make yeah. any sense. Yeah, well, there was the thing where LeBron, like when LeBron James had something to say about Colin Kaepernick and, you know, not to call her out, but Laura Ingram was like, yep. her quote was shut up and play basketball. But then right. just this year, Drew Brees had something to say about it. And she said, no, he should be allowed to have a voice to say what he thinks. And wait a minute, why, why is Drew Brees allowed to say what he thinks, but Colin Kaepernick is not? Well, the the obvious or, or LeBron is not well it's obvious that oh, there's only one difference between the two of them besides the fact that they're different individuals and play different sports you know right. and and I it, it's so hard to ignore the glaring double standard in that in that type of situation because it's yeah. it's so obvious yeah and it's, it is and to be honest it's it's one of those things where you start to lose faith and listening to any of those kinds of things <laughs> because it, because you, you just realize there's no there's no traction and no solidarity towards real change. It's, it's more geared towards um, we, we want to go back to the way things were, you know, let's make America great again or, or whatever you want to call it, you know? And um, I know that Josh has, he's steaming because I'm sure he has lots he wants to share too. I can see the smoke coming out of his ears. <laughs> well, wait, he's got headphones on. I can't. <laughs> No, I'm just, I mean, sitting back and thinking, I mean, it just frustrates me, but I think this again ties back into the American nationalism thing and, and the conflation of Christianity and America because America is its own religion. And what you're seeing is it's not like, <laughs> like people, I mean, when, like when Colin Kaepernick knelt during the anthem, it was never, ever, ever about disrespect the military, you know, F the police, nothing like that. But he was subversively acting against a religious practice that we have here in America, which is standing for the national anthem. And so like, I think that plays into it, but also too, it, it, we can go to show that we know it has never been about the anthem because even when was it recently week one of the NFL season this year, the, the chiefs and whoever they played stood together, linked arm in arm, every other player in unity during the anthem and they got booed for it. Right. So they weren't kneeling. They right. weren't kneeling. It's, man, but the, I think Drew that you had mentioned how your, your favorite um, or one of your favorite chapters to write was the Barabbas chapter. And that like, for me, that's my favorite chapter. Like overall, I, I loved it. Um, and one thing that it did for me, just personal transformative change in my own life is it shifted my posture. Cause I mean, I'm a, I'm a proponent of nonviolence. And then I have mixed feelings about how people uh, use violence. Um, but I also, like you were saying, I think it's super nuanced. I want to defend, I want, you know what I mean? But um, I think what it did for me was you kind of pointed out how Jesus didn't just straight up go out and condemn people, but rather Jesus mourned. And yeah. so I think that like 
that was transformative for me. Like that alone, this idea that, okay, stop thinking about the violence and destruction for a second. Why is this happening? And let's mourn with those who are mourning. Um, like that is a shift in posture. And it, I mean, I think it plays into just the idea of prophetic lament. Um, and it just, it, I mean, that wrecked me, man. Like I put the book down after I read that sentence, um, where you talk about Jesus mourning. And so that, that was great. Um, so I really, yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, and and there was that one part, I mean, it's interesting how I, cause you know, at different points you're, you have different points are made for different reasons for different audiences, right. Right. As you're writing. And that portion really was for folks who are committed to Christian pacifism or nonviolence. I wanted to push. Um, uh, within my own community, right, to push a more empathetic stance and a more lamenting stance than I think I often see and hear too often among Christian pacifists and Christians who are committed to nonviolence. Um, too often there's this kind of distanced critique um, and often by folks who are on the sidelines who are not like, I mean, how are you going to critique how somebody else is struggling for violence against violence when you're not even engaged, right? Then I don't know, like, who gives us the right to to kind of have that kind of self-righteous posture um, from from comfort and safety, right? And so um, let us enter in an empathetic solidarity, then let us lament. I mean, Jesus is mourned by the, the, the route that they're going because he knows that for them, this is death dealing for them, right? Mm-hmm. This is harmful mm-hmm. for them. This is not life. This is not the, the way to life. Um, and so when we can actually grasp that and feel that, not just have a conviction of an idea, but really feel the implications of what they're drawing themselves into, um, that this, this can actually make things worse for you, right? Um, that that's, that's what we want to just feel the weight of all of that, the cycles of violence, the pain, the suffering that, that can increase in the midst of all of this. Um, we've got to feel that in our hearts really heavy, weigh that in our bodies, literally carry that with us. Um, in terms of who we are. And I think that will, it's, it's going to be transformative, right? When we, when, when the people of God lament, um, I think it's, it's a powerful um, change of our own disposition and how we see the world and how we experience what's happening around us. Yeah. And, and one more thing too, just, I mean, to sit in this conversation, because I think it's, it's so important with what, what has been really playing in the back of my mind um, this whole time now is just this, this whole situation with uh, Brianna Taylor. Um, because what we're <laughs> with the, the telling people to stop with the burning stuff down is caring more about property than it is about human life. That's and right. I think, excuse me for getting emotional, but I think what we're seeing with this, what we're seeing with the verdict in, in the Brianna Taylor case is just that. The police officers were charged with the destruction of property when an, right. a person was sleeping in their bed and was killed. You know, that's freaking crazy. Like, yeah. and then too, like with the, for all the, the, the people out there talking about like, oh, if somebody ever comes to my house, I'm going to shoot them. Well, someone issues a no-knock warrant. They kick down your door. You pull your gun to defend yourself you do exactly what you're told you're supposed to do in that situation. Right. And it's just, I don't know, man. I, but that, that's been sitting on, uh, on the top of my heart, like this, this whole time. And we just did an interview with Rob Bell not too long ago. And that's, he asked me, he's like, Josh, forget about your outline. 
what is sitting on the top of your heart? And let's talk about that. Um, and I thought that was good advice. So I wanted to bring that forth because that's, you know, that's what's here. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, it's, we, we, we do that. We value property. We value buildings. We value everything else, but we don't value black people's lives. Um, and I think, um, I mean, I just can't imagine what Brianna Taylor's family is going through right now. I mean, this, that's just so insulting. Um, that, you know, the guy got charged for shooting to the other apartment where no one dies, but they killed, they killed their baby. I mean, it just, it's insulting. Um, yeah. I don't even know if I have words right now for, it's just, it's still heavy. And, um, and then people want to know why, why people want to burn stuff down. Of course people want to burn stuff down. I bet you Jesus went, I bet you Jesus was feeling like I'm this close to just burning this all down. Right. I mean, some people have argued that we've misunderstood the Gethsemane moments and some of him is, it's not necessarily just a matter of, Oh, will I die? Of course not. But which option will I take? Right. Moving forward. Um, and, and so some people see that as, you know, Jesus is, is grappling with the, the, the zealot option, right? Um, that this is, because it's a very real, I mean, in the midst of what's going on, uh, your people are suffering. Um, we know for facts that Jesus, when he was young, we know for facts in Galilee, um, that an entire town that tried to resist was like slaughtered. Um, you know, thousands of men were crucified and many others were carried off into slavery. Like, this ha Jesus knew about that, you know? Um, so I, I, I just think, um, yeah, we, we, we don't, we, we're not, Dr. King actually said, and I actually do quote this in the book that, that he said, we need to go, we need to undergo a radical revolution of values, uh, moving from a thing oriented society to a person oriented society we are so far from that and it seems like we just keep going farther and farther but but it is even worse when it comes to black folk because we don't even count as people we don't even count as persons it seems still in our society and there's a long history going all the way back to um slavery because how we practice slavery in this land was that black people aren't actually persons in other places like you enslaved people here we were considered chattel I mean, that was, the, that was the difference between how we practice. And so we're still haunted. And that's why people don't want to talk about slavery because they don't want to actually grapple with how that shapes how we see and act and live and treat people even in the present world today. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I still, every now and then when I just think about uh, Brianna Taylor's family and just the pain of just the insult of it, um, it's, it it's, it's unbearable, yeah. And, and they were they were willing as a city to give them money um you know they you know they earlier in the week or last week or whatever they they announced that they were settling for like a you know couple million dollars or something like that for her family but they were willing to do that so it's almost as if they're willing to say we're willing to give money but we're not willing to give justice right. um, we're, we're willing to we're willing to do something so in in some ways you're giving money you're admitting something was done wrong here um but but then but then when it comes time to really 
when the rubber really hits the road, when it's really time to say we're going to stand up against this uh, this this whole thing. Um, and you know, I've seen a lot of people like Josh was saying, um, say things like, you know, she shouldn't have been um, she shouldn't have been in relationship with people that were into drugs and you know that were selling drugs and that kind of thing. And it's like you know, even selling drugs, even having drugs is not a death sentence <laughs> just right. because you have them in your hand. So right. you, you aren't in, in a position where you need to be shot, let alone you don't have them in your hand. You're not doing anything. You're in your own bed. You're sleeping. You're doing nothing wrong. You happen to associate with this other person who right. has has engaged in these things. That shouldn't be a death sentence for you because the weird thing is, is that <coughs> Jesus engaged with the sinners of the world, the people that were the drug dealers of today. He engaged with the people and spent time with those people. And, you know, that alone wasn't the, wasn't the death sentence even for Jesus. That's right. That wasn't the reason why he was crucified. And so if it wasn't the death sentence for Jesus, it shouldn't be for anybody. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, the, the thing that I've really struggled through in a lot of all of this lately, personally, is why standing against this has to be so controversial. Um, why there are people that want to say, um, you know, all lives matter instead of Black Lives Matter. Um, why, why, why they have to come up with something else to, to come, like someone says Black Lives Matter, so then they have to have this other thing that comes from the other side. I don't understand why that's a thing. And it's been so difficult to go through, you know, as a, as a white man in an all white family with, I have plenty of friends that are black and people of color, but I don't, you know, I'm, I don't associate with them every day. They're not the only people I spend time with, you know, wanting to engage with this and seek real change and go after how I can be a part, just just one person as a part, and how I can teach my kids to be a part, and be each be individuals, and in going against this notion that our that our society, that our world has right now. You've got all these people outside on, on the other side, you know, over here, and it's like they're in their own bubble. But this bubble is way too big. I mean, I just don't get why. And um, I don't know if you have insight into that and if you i mean i know that there was some talk about that in your book there are some different things about uh columbia scene um thought process with christianity and like white supremacy and our discipleship and how that all comes together but and i know we're kind of just talking now and so i realize we're <laughs> we're, we're taking time more than we need to i think but you know what what's the reason that there's this 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 such a strong desire to go against the idea that black lives matter i mean what I mean, there could be something it's rooted in, but I mean, why? Yeah. Why do people hate seeking this change? Well, I mean, I think, so if we tie in the former conversation with this conversation, so we were talking about religious nationalism and at the heart of that is a story of American exceptionalism, right? It's this really powerful story that drives um, the consciousness of a lot of folks in our nation. Um, and then you have the actual history, which is the American project was grounded in anti-blackness. Like, you know, there is no American project um, as we know it, right? Except for the, the stealing, the torturing, uh, the brutality, the raping, the treating like racialized chattel of black people in this land for centuries. Um, 
That is what built our economy. That is why they kept expanding part of the fight over expansion. I mean, that's why the, the conditions in which indigenous people are, are experiencing genocide and displaced are deeply rooted to black people because they wanted to expand slavery into new states over and over and over again. And they wanted, I mean, had, had the Civil War not happened, they wanted Cuba and they wanted, you know, like it would have never been quenched. Um, it was this unquenchable desire um, to just keep expanding slavery, anti-black slavery, right? Black bodies um, being tortured um, to produce um, a booming economy for the nation. Um, we don't want to grapple with that because the American exceptionalist story and the truthful reality of what actually happened, they're not compatible stories. They actually don't work together side by side. They, one has to be not true. And so if the religion of, of, America, of God and country is, is one's faith and one is, one's identity is bound up in that, one's sense of who they are is deeply bound in that, all their pride and ego and all that is, is, forms them into that, right? Then that is an assault of one's personhood um, to challenge, um, even if it's just, it's a myth, it's a powerful myth. It's a powerful identity-shaping myth. Um, and I think that... Um, that too often, unfortunately, Christianity is all mangled into that. It's deeply, deeply mangled into all of that, entangled in it um, for some folks. And they can't even, they wouldn't even know how to begin severing the one from the other. And so, of course, I mean, in some ways it's, it, once we, like, when, once you, like, it, at first it seems like ridiculous. Like, how can people do this? And then when you look back and you're like, of course, I'm surprised there's folks that have broken free, right? Like, that's the amazing part, right? Um, because it's just so deeply entangled in terms of just the American religious experience in this land from the very beginnings. And it just got worse. I mean, for centuries, it was actually getting worse up until Civil War. I mean, just the brutality um, um, that's documented, the kind of violence and torture was actually growing um, um, as, as slavery went on. It wasn't getting, and so Christianity, and Christianity was increasing its legitimizing of it, right? It was sanctioning it. It was doing biblical scholarship and theology all to, and so, yeah, I mean, it's all connected, I would say, to the history of Christendom and, and colonialism and you know, I call Constantinian Christianity and Columbusian Christianity, all of that, but it takes us, but it takes root in a really distinct way in the United States, um, and it, and it has forever, I should say forever, it has long-term shaped the life of the church. And until the church is willing to undergo radical uh, repentance and, and rebirth, right? Until we can really like, really be transformed and break the cycle, which can only happen by dealing with where we've come from and what has shaped us instead of ignoring it and suppressing it. So much suppression and denial that's so deeply a part of all of this, right? Um, that it triggers people. I think there's this subconscious like guilt that that is floating in the air almost. Why there's so much suppression of 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 black bodies? Because black bodies we're the evidence of of great crimes against humanity, against the people made in the image of God. Because we're still here, right, walking around. Um, and, and so anyway, I think there's a lot of stuff that haunts us as a nation. Um, and until we lean in and deal with it, um, it will continue to, and the cycles will continue to, they will mutate, they do, they keep, nothing stays the same. And certainly a lot of good things have happened because 
I think because the black folk have helped us actually become more democratic as a society, right? And to be more inclusive as a society and to be more committed to justice than we had been before. So there, it's not like we're static, but also these other things are mutating as well. And I think that we've got to grapple with them. Yeah, it's, I love, uh, I'll end with this because unfortunately I have to, uh, to peace out and we should probably also be respectful to, to your Saturday as well, Drew. Um, because we honestly we could talk all day this man i don't even feel like we we did your book justice um but one of my favorite things that you did in the book and i think it's kind of a, a thread you you pulled through it is the church had a huge part if not was the main part of birthing white supremacy in america and until the church comes to terms with that and wrestles with it nothing's going to change because often, I think what, what I really liked is you pointed out, we talk about pro the, prob the problem as if it's out there somewhere. Like, oh, wait, white supremacy is out there. Racism is outside of the church. This is all stuff that is out there somewhere. But rather, the, the real truth is, no, it's, it's here. It's, it's integral. It's a part of it. Um, and until we wrestle with that, come to terms and repent <laughs> and, and change our ways, then nothing's going to happen. So... I'm so grateful for your work, for your book, man. It's um, it's so good, and I uh, wish you the best of luck as you continue to to go around and, and keep keep speaking and, and sharing this important message, man. I um, it needs to be heard. So thank you for for undertaking that. I know it's not a an easy thing to do, and um, yeah, I, I I don't have words, man. It's it's awesome. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for both of you. Um, always a pleasure to talk to both of you. This time went so quick, I didn't even realize. It did, right? <laughs> um, but, um, but always a pleasure talking with you guys. And yeah, hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, most definitely. We would love to have some, uh, give some more, more time to your awesome work. So thank you so much, Drew. And uh, have a great day, man. Peace and love. Uh -huh.